Amen. Thanks, Pastor Drew. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Um, so yeah, my name is Alex. I am one of the pastors here. If you're new here, I'd love to meet you before you uh, head out today. Um, and uh, this morning, I've I di- this is not in the manuscript, which I really should stick to. Um, but this morning, I you know I've been reflecting on the fact that I'm a I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. Uh, you're like good. Glad we you know what you're doing today. Um, yeah. Um, I preached my first sermon at the age of 16. I met Jesus about 90 days before uh, I turned 16 years old, so he saved me just in time before I got the freedom to travel wherever I wanted and get into more trouble. Jesus saved me, and I started preaching uh, in my youth group uh, at the age of 16, and my first sermon was on uh, Jesus Loves Punk Rockers, and um, and I'm still convinced of that day he does, and he probably loves them best. Anyway, um, so... Uh, but why preach today um, has been kind of heavy on my heart, um, and I do believe, um, I believe dead people come to life by the power of the gospel. And so that's why I'm standing here today as a very imperfect man, a very flawed man, a man who is just as guilty as the thief that died next to Jesus, I'm there, uh, and that's where my heart is today. And uh, so no matter who you are, where you come from, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, um, uh, I'm no savior, and I don't think anybody in here would raise their hand like, well, look to me, I have the answers. But we are pointing to the one who does have the answers and offers us eternal life, and that's the Lord Jesus. Um, so I'm really grateful to be with you, uh, but my heart is very much so uh, sober toward the Lord and uh, what we're dealing with when we read um, this book called The Holy Bible. And so uh, it is with real fear and trembling that I stand before you today um, with such a powerful passage. And if you don't know what we're talking about in Psalm 51, get ready. It's a doozy. Uh, It's about one of the most famous men in the Bible, King David, committing one of the most famous sins in the Bible, actually two of them, adultery and murder, welcome to church, and uh, probably the most famous repentant piece of scripture where we see a heart gushing before God. And so the Psalms are probably the most beloved book in in the faith. That is, regardless of whether, how long you've been a Christian or not, there's probably some of a psalm that sounds familiar to you, like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or right, or he knit me together in my mother's womb. There's, there's parts of the psalms that resonate with us, and, and it's, here's why. It's because they are poetry. They're not prose. That's why you know Psalm 23 and probably don't know much about Leviticus 23. Why? Is one more inspired? No, neither are more inspired. But there is a way to connect with an audience that prose does not accomplish. That is the arts, music, imagery, metaphor has a way of sinking down into a hearer over and above mere prose. That's why you see Jesus teaching in parables, for example. It's not that he couldn't blow your mind with a a dialogue about the interparacharitic Trinitarian ontological relationships of the Trinity. He could do that, but instead he's like, the kingdom of heaven's kind of like a guy goes fishing and catches fish and sorts the good ones and bad ones out at the end. Like, got it. I'll never forget that. 
That's what happens when we talk poetry, when we talk versus prose. And so that's why we listen to music. That's why we read what we read. That's why we entertain ourselves with fantastic stories and novels and so on. It's because it has a way of getting into the fabric of our lives. The Psalms really do just that. That is, the Psalms will speak to you at just about any point of your life. There's the biggest ups in the world. God saves the day. Happily ever after moments. And then there's great moments of complete faithlessness, complete despair. God, you've abandoned us. God, you even see what's going on in this world down here. My life is terrible. Kill him. That's called an imprecatory prayer. Like, you ever read those? You're like, whoa, man. Like, David's just like, Lord, you're so great. Thank you for saving me. Would you kill him? Oh, and would you search my heart and see if there's anything off? And like, that would have been a part right there. But these Psalms speak to the whole gamut, the whole human experience of life with God. There's even a few instances where the psalmist gets so close to talking about Jesus, it's almost like his name is all, should almost be right there. If you ever feel that way reading the Psalms, like, is this exactly about Jesus? Yes. Yes. So, Anyway, David wrote roughly 73 of the Psalms, King David, the king of Israel. But there's other authors, too. There's many that are unknown. Moses even got one in there. Yes, and you're like, wow, Moses. This is... So the Psalms took about 1,000 years for uh, the, the Hebrew community to assemble. And the Psalms are simply uh, reflections sung by the community to God. This is why we sing all the time. This is why St. Paul tells the churches to encourage one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Why are we singing? Because singing somehow grabs the human experience and puts us together in a way that just nothing else really does. And so, anyway, there's, there's a lot that we could do on the history of the psalms, and I've I taught on it in university, and if you'd like to sit down and talk for hours and hours and hours about parallelisms and on all that other stuff that yeah, we can do that elsewhere. But briefly here, Psalm 51, historically, the historical setting we actually do know. You don't always know the historical setting of all the Psalms, but this one, it's pretty clear. And the best of Hebrew scholars would tell us that this is David's repentant psalm. And so what you won't find in the Psalms, if you've never read them, I highly encourage you to read them. Pick anywhere and start. Here's what you won't find. You won't find a bashful community that's afraid to say how they really feel to and about God. You won't find that. You'll find the truth. And it sometimes can make you feel really Ugh. Like, did you just say that to God? That's what you find. And the Psalms invite the real you to meet with the real God. And I think that's beautiful. So, the Psalms, Psalm 51, let's jump in. If you have a Bible, go there. I'm going to tell you the background of this particular Psalm. Oh, man. All right. 
the background of Psalm 51 and Psalm chapter 32 as well. These are the so if you want to go read these later, Psalm 32 would be the other one that is right here in the same context as Psalm 51. This comes on the heels of King David and his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. If you want to read about this account, you can go read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses or 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'm going to summarize it in bullet points for you. Uh, and then walk through Psalm 51. Uh, but I highly encourage you to just sit down this week and open 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and just read it slowly and let the text do its work. I'm telling you, it just gets, it's just awful. It's just awful. But it's, it's a powerful thing that we see here come on the heels of great sin. So let's do it. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David was the king of Israel and was expected to be at war. It was springtime. David is the guy who was prophesied about that it was anointed since a child. You will be the king of Israel. He was the youngest of many brothers. And lo and behold, he's a shepherd boy. And God has picked him out to lead the nation of Israel. So David's ego goes way up from an early age. David, uh, is a, is, he's a handsome fellow like myself. Uh, just kidding. Killed a bear with his own hands, unlike myself. Uh, killed a lion with his bare hands. He killed uh, Goliath, right? Saves the nation. Saul killed a thousand. David's killed tens of thousands. This dude is amazing. So David is anointed. He's installed as the king. Israel was at war. And David was expected to be out on the battlefield. And David decided not to go to war on a particular spring day. He opted out of his kingly duties and responsibilities and stayed home. And in staying home from war, one particular afternoon, he walked out onto his balcony and looked across the way and saw a beautiful woman bathing. And David desired to have her as his wife. And so he inquires about her. He asks some of the servants, who is that? Find out who that is. And they go and they find out, oh, she's, she's Uriah's wife, Uriah the Hittite. A Hittite, by the way, was not a part of the Israelite community. It was not a Hebrew person that belonged to the family of God. He's a Hittite, but he actually still served in Israel's army. So that's Uriah's wife. And so David said, well, bring her, bring her to me. And so they spent the afternoon together, and one thing led to another, and David slept with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba and broke one of the Ten Commandments, adultery. And then he sent her back home, and not long after, she sent word to David, I'm pregnant. So now David was in an unbelievable predicament. I don't know another word for that, but predicament, I guess, fits. Um, crisis. What do you do with an unwanted baby? Especially as the king, 
because of how severe the situation it is, he's, what, what do you do? Do you, do we kill the baby? Do we kill Bathsheba? Do I kill myself? After all, I'm leading the nation. I'm writing the Psalms for crying out loud. What do I, how can I carry on with this shame on my record? I mean, I've killed thousands on the battlefield. Bear, Goliath, whatever. I, now, how can I face myself? Right. Do I kill Uriah, the husband? Is there a way out? You ever been there? You've dug yourself in so deep where you're going, I don't know a way out. Well, David, he sends for Uriah to be brought home from battle. He has, he has his first plan. is where he has Uriah come in the house or come into the palace. He has several drinks with Uriah. The scripture says David got Uriah drunk and then said, all right, head on home. Go back to Bathsheba. That is, well... He's been away at battle, comes home, meets with the king. Now he's drunk. Go home. I.e., David's thinking one thing will lead to another when he gets home from being from battle and the dude's drunk. He'll probably go and be intimate with his wife. Oh, look, she's pregnant. Congratulations, Uriah. You're a dad. That was David's scheme. However, after Uriah's drunk... Uriah doesn't go home, but rather goes and finds where all King David's servants are sleeping, and says, the scripture says that he found a couch and crashed on a couch. That Uriah the Hittite, in a drunken state, seems to have more character than the king of Israel. So he won't go home. Why would I go home? My men are at battle. We got to protect the king. I'm staying right here. So now David's faced with an even greater dilemma. So what does he do? Does he come clean? Would he just admit to Uriah he's screwed up and go before God and say he sinned? Uh, what will he do? Will he go to the priest and confess his sins? I mean, what does the law say? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, are to be put to death. There's the law of God. So why not come clean? Because he knows he'll be put to death. But somebody's got to die. So he opts for a death, but not his own. He sent word to Joab saying, hey, when the battle is at its worst, fall back and have Uriah struck down. That way it'll look like he's going to die defending Israel. So sure enough, Uriah goes back to battle, and that's what happens. He's killed in war. He's set up to be struck down. And then David thinks he's gotten away with it. He's covered his tracks. No one will ever know. Deleted. Uriah's gone. Then he marries Bathsheba. She has the baby, but the baby dies shortly thereafter. So now we have two deaths in the story, Uriah and the baby. And yet, as we read the story, we know that David's not getting away with anything. And we have 
the Lord being displeased. So the Lord then sends Nathan, the prophet, to speak to David, right? You know the story? Shows up, and Nathan, the prophet, tells a parable to David. Like, David, I need your attention. I want to tell you a story. Great, I love stories. Well, all right. There's two men in a certain city. There's a really wealthy guy with hundreds and hundreds of animals in his flock, and he has a guest come to his house. Now, there's this other guy, poor guy, has one little ewe lamb, eats from his table, sleeps at the foot of his bed. The scripture even says he cares for it as a man cares for his daughter. It's like, right, right? Well, the rich guy wouldn't go take one out of his own flock to prepare for a meal for the guest in town. So what's he do? He goes and he takes that one man's ewe lamb and kills it and serves it. What's David do? He, he turns into the Goliath killer. <gasps> like, right? He's like, that man must die from the words of his own. He should die for that. You are that man. You did. You took what didn't belong to you. And you've killed, and you're lying, and you're posturing, and you're faking it. Repent. And David repents. And Psalm 51 captures David's heart gush in light of just how bad his sin is. So let's walk through it. Welcome to church. <laughs> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I love how he starts. Have mercy. He recognizes he recognizes his evil. He recognizes his sin. I've broken the commandments. I've, I've offended God. What's he do? He doesn't come in and start tiptoeing around and going, uh, 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 Lord, uh, if you didn't make Bathsheba so beautiful, we wouldn't be in this situation. Lord, if you, if you didn't give me a mind that knew how to conceive of doing such things to cover my... No, David doesn't start blaming God for his sin. Ever been there where you blame God for your sin? No, Pastor, I've never done that in my life. Well, I have. Lord, I'm screwed up, and it's your fault. I wouldn't have got into this situation if you would have just been looking out for me, if you would have taught me the right way to live my life. Right? No, David doesn't do any of this. He doesn't put it on God. He shows up, and what you see throughout this entire psalm is a human being before God owning his sin completely. Have mercy on me, oh God. Mercy is asking for God to withhold what he deserves. Have mercy on me. Don't give me justice. Have mercy on me. According to your, uh, what does he say? According to your abundant mercy, blot out or erase or delete my transgressions. Have you ever been there where you've been so guilty before God and just so unbelievably busted? Where you're like, Lord, blot it out, erase it. Make it go away. Take it away from me. Take this off my record. That's what David's asking for. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I love this. I love this. Wash me thoroughly. Like I thought about, I don't know, the VCs, Zach and Aaron, they got baptized and, and, and uh, 
Gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, Matt Vanderveen and my daughter Tove that got baptized just over the last few months. Wash me, cleanse me. That's what baptism speaks to, is a, is a cleansing before God. Wash me, make me clean before you. Make me clean, cleanse me. This is what God offers us in the gospel is a cleansing, a clean slate, a new start. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I, I know what I've done. I'm not confused. I don't have any questions about what I've done. I know it's wrong. My sin is ever before me. And then this verse is interesting. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So against you and you only have I sinned. It's not that there weren't other people involved. Bathsheba was sinned against. Uriah was sinned against. The nation was sinned against. But when David squares up, he doesn't just go, I, 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 I was unethical here. Uh, my morals were off a little bit here and it impacted it. No, his sin, he understands, is more than just uh, a mistake. Mistakes, is, uh, that's, that's, that's not as strong as word. Sin is a theological word, and he realizes, I have sinned theologically. I have sinned in a Godward manner. I broke commandments against you and you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. So he's owning his sin. You see, it's not repentance until you take complete ownership of your actions. The things you've left undone and the things you've done it's not repentance until you own it completely and go, it's me, Lord. I know what I did. So he admits that God is right, that you would be blameless in your judgment. You're right. I agree with you, Lord. I agree with you. So you see how serious he is? This isn't just the lip service stuff. This is serious. Why be so blunt? Why be so thorough? Why be so specific in his confession? Because he knows that God is holy. He knows that he's not talking to one of these other pagan deities that turns a blind eye from time to time, or may even be immoral himself, but rather he knows God is holy, perfect, and blameless, and just. David knows what the writer of Hebrews tells us that everything is laid naked before the eyes of God to whom we give an account. Then he says this verse, verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this is an interesting part of the prayer. All of a sudden, like, what does your mother have to do with this sin, David? Well, uh, in, in sin, I was conceived and brought forth in iniquity. Look, this is not just a statement about the ontological nature of human beings. What this is, this is a statement of David going, as far back as the sin starts conceived, it's mine. It's mine. My sin, Lord, you didn't do this. In, in you, there's no darkness, right? right? This, is, this is the big idea. As far back as it goes, as far back as sin goes in my life, it's mine. It's mine. I own it. And so he's just throwing himself at the mercy of God. 
Behold. And he changes in verses 6 to 14. Look at this. And he starts asking God to do what he can't do for himself. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David knows that what God wants is that he desires for not only just lip service about truth, that he, you want truth down in here. You want integrity in here. You want my life to correspond. The outward actions of my life are to, to be in correspondence with a heart that's been transformed by grace. God, I know what you want in my heart. You want truth in here, integrity in here, faithfulness, gratitude, generosity, and all of the other virtues that we talk about as Christians. You want it in here, in our hearts. You know, that's what God is after, redemption, here with us today, is that God desires a heart that is transformed that leads to actions that follow and flow out naturally versus try to do a bunch of good works and change your heart from the outside in. That's not the gospel. That's every other religion. The gospel is, I'll give you a new heart, and lo and behold, actions begin to change. Amen. All right, so verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So he's asking God, this is something I, th I think about this verse pretty often as soon as I get in the shower. You start shower as you're washing. Martin Luther said, every time you take a shower, remember your baptism. Sim wash me, make me clean. You start your day, start your day. As I'm, being, as I'm physically being clean, God, cleanse my heart. And he references this hyssop plant which was used in sprinkling water over people in the Hebrew community. And it's mentioned in two places in the law, in Leviticus and in Numbers. In Leviticus, it's used in reference to someone who had leprosy and has been cleansed and is welcomed back into the community. And in Numbers, it's used in reference to someone who has touched a dead body, a corpse. David is going before God, going, cleanse me with hyssop. I should be kicked out. I've been in touch with the dead. I've lived like I'm dead in my sin. Cleanse me. Cleanse me. So good. The, the best way to even translate the word purge right here is literally de-sin. De-sin. Emptying me of sin. Can you imagine that day is actually coming for the Christian? That we have been justified. We are being cleansed daily as we walk in the Spirit. But there's coming a day that just as you take a glass and dump water out, you will be completely empty of your sinful flesh. David's praying for that. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. So what does he mean, what's whiter than snow? Well, that would be called hyperbole. Um, he's saying that when God cleanses you, when God cleans you, when God forgives you, when God does something on your behalf, he does it thoroughly and completely and perfectly. Listen, church, whoever you are, whatever you've done this week, even this morning, listen, God does not sort of forgive you. 
God doesn't sort of do anything. He didn't sort of become born through the virgin. He didn't sort of die on a cross, and he didn't sort of raise from the dead. God does not sort of halfway, partially, incompletely fill you or forgive you. What does God do? Cleanses you thoroughly, perfectly, forever. That's great news for those of us who have blown it big time. And if you haven't blown it, well, you're really wasting your time this morning being here, but stick with me. All right. What's he say? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and block it, blot out all my iniquities. So now he's asking God, hide your face from my sins. He's not saying hide your face from me. Hide your face from my sin. God, look away from this. Look away from all that I've done. See, David's concerned about one thing and one thing only right here, and it's his relationship with God. Above everything else, you, hear, you don't hear him saying, make me a great king again. Put me back on the battlefield again. Let me do something awesome in your name again. What's he saying? God, I want a relationship with you above everything else. I want you. Hide your face from my sin. I want, I want you. Have you ever been there in your life? Maybe you're there today. Maybe as you're hearing the scripture this morning, you're going like, oh yeah. That's what I want. I want you, Lord. So repentance is ongoing. And now look, he changes his tone from repentance to salvation. Verse 10, created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Look, he, this harkens back. It's the same word that you see in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God created. Now he's asking God to do another Genesis. Only this time, it's not God just doing creation, speaking the cosmos and human beings into, into existence. He's saying, recreate, create a new heart within me. Put something in me. Renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. God, do something in my life. Get me out of this gutter. Get me out of this rut. Get me out of this habit, this pattern of believing, this pattern of behaving that is sitting against you. It's sinning against others. It's sinning against myself. God, do something awesome in me. Have you prayed like that before? Are you praying? This is, this is where God would have us, church. God, move in me. Put a heart in me, a spirit in me that doesn't stop in its pursuit of you. He's asking God for a new heart. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And this isn't David hinting at the fact that you can lose your salvation. Rather, David's concerned with this practice of salvation. God, I want to be near you. I want to be close to you. I want to be in your presence. I don't want to do it my way anymore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So now he's praying that God would make him willing and eager to obey God. And, and look what it says. It says that he wants his obedience to be fueled by what? It says it right here, verse 12, joy. You see, obedience to God 
or the lack thereof is always directly tied to our enjoyment of God. Very simply, trying to obey the commandments apart from actually enjoying the wonderful, compassionate, kind, caring nature of God will turn his commandments into burdens rather than blessings that accompany the redeemed life. And quite frankly, brothers and sisters, this is why so many Christians are miserable that they don't grasp the reality that God is a joyous God, a happy God, a forgiving God, a smiling God who is willing and able to save anyone who will come before him and exchange their sin for his salvation. This is why we place an emphasis on enjoying Jesus at redemption because our obedience follows what we Enjoy. So verse, look at this. It says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners uh, will return to God. So look, David doesn't plan on keeping all this to himself. He just committed murder. I mean, you guys look at me like a bunch of white Presbyterians this morning. Look, (laughs) the man legitimately murdered somebody. slept with somebody that wasn't his wife. There is death everywhere. David's going, please don't send me to hell. And he knows that the God of the universe is grinning at him. Not because he's smirking over his sin, but because he delights in him as his son and will not quit on his kid. He will not quit on you on your worst day. God is not going to quit on you, church. This is what puts joy in your heart. This is what makes obedience to God good. This is why we show up in church every Sunday. This is why we do life groups. This is why we tell our unbelieving friends about Jesus. This is why we show up with our family on July 4th, and some of them don't know Jesus, and we're going to tell them anyway. Why? Because God raises the dead, because God forgives our sins, because God put joy in a joyless heart, and he put purpose in a purposeless life. He put meaning in a meaningless existence. God showed up and did that. God saved your marriage. God saved your soul. God saved your kid. God did all of that free because he didn't owe it to you. He gave it to you anyway, and he's taking you to heaven because he can't stomach the idea of heaven without you. That's why God gave his son. Have you ever sat with that long enough? I would rather die than be without you. That's the heart of God. That's why David just shows up and goes, have mercy on me, oh God, and then just boom. Why is he going to ask God for mercy and grace? Because he read Exodus. The Lord, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, grace abounding to generation after generation. David's going, all right, I'm in line. Be that way toward me today, Lord. And any person that will ask God for grace and to give him a new heart, David knows it's true. Then I'll open my mouth and I'll tell transgressors your ways. What's he saying right there? Very plainly, I don't plan on stomaching all this grace to myself. I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to tell other people about what God did for me. I'm going to get in my Bible. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray and I'm going to open my mouth. Redemption, do you know that God actually invites you to open your mouth and to tell the good news of Jesus? 
to other people, to proclaim the truth, that we're not intended to just keep it all together to ourselves and just gather in a church building or in a life group every week and only talk to Christians about Christian things and wear Christian t-shirts and Christian bracelets and Christian breath mitts and Christian socks and go on Christian camps and read Christian books and listen only to Christian music and do, do, do the Christian homeschool thing and only, only, only talk to Christians. Do you know that like this is what happens when you sleep with someone that's not your spouse and then have the husband killed and you get grace? You know what you're going to do? You open your mouth. That's what happens. And not out of a burden, but because it's the greatest thing that actually happened to you. This is what happens when we really start to sit with a joyous, happy God who gets glory out of pardoning sinners like you and me. Crazy, over the top. So I have a ridiculous picture I want to show you today of myself. Go ahead, Julie. There. Um, that is a maniac. Um, I don't know that guy, but I saw him at a Sounders game. And um, <laughs> gosh, um, this is a person. Pastor Drew and I go to a lot of Sounders games, and we try to be the loudest ones in there. Um, and I'm pretty sure we are based on that evidence right there. This is a picture of a man who will stand in the rain, freeze, stand up in his seat, and be as loud as possible over what? Well, we won that game and we were going to the cup. Joy, joy. You see, we know what joy looks like. Oh, that's what happens when we get a good long glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus as he resurrects from the dead to forgive us and pardon us. Joy accompanies the one who gets grace. Okay, let's take that picture down so we can keep moving. All right, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, let's see, verse, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He starts singing about the righteousness of God. For you will not delight in sacrifices. Hold on. But what about all these sacrifices you read about in Leviticus? You will not delight in sacrifice. Or I'd get it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, here's what it is. You want to know what God really wants from you? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, he wants what God wants is sacrifices that correspond to a heart. Like, God wants our offerings, our life that we give to him to actually flow from a heart that's been regenerated. You will not delight in sacrifice or I give it to you. So what he's, what he's saying here is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This is what, if you want to read about it somewhere else, it's, it's Romans 7. Go read uh, and go reading in, in uh, I'm sorry, in, in First Corinthians, where, where Paul starts uh, talking about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, oh man, I feel bad, I got caught. Godly sorrow is, oh my gosh, against you and you only have I sinned, creating me a new heart. This that would be called godly sorrow. This is what David's getting at right here. What God wants from us is a broken spirit and a contrite heart, and it is a broken spirit to whom he sends his spirit. That's where David is. 
And then he says this. He starts talking about the country all of a sudden. He's still king. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Why is he now is he talking about the state of the country? He prays that the city and the nation would prosper because his changed heart would not just be a private affair, but it would actually impact the way he would lead the nation. That his politics would be directly informed by his understanding of who God is and what God desires. He wants God's leadership from the secret place of his heart all the way out into the political sphere of life. You see, when God transforms your heart, it impacts everything. Verse 19, here it is. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. What's he saying here? He's not saying that God doesn't want his people to sacrifice. He's saying God wants the heart engaged in the offering of sacrifices. So, what does all this have to do with Jesus? We are confessing Christians, correct? Okay, well here, here's what this has to do with Jesus. Jesus is the truer and greater King David. Jesus was born in King David's lineage, And Jesus ushered in a kingdom far greater than the kingdom of Israel. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. So how can God turn away his face from all the blood guilt on David's life? How can God do that? How can God look at a liar, a murderer, an adulterer and go, I'm going to welcome you into my family. I thought the law said someone should die. Jesus stepped in and did die. There was a day when God did not turn his face away. Like the hymn says, to look on him and pardon me. That's how Jesus fits into this story. So when it was time to go to war, Jesus didn't stay home. Jesus went. When it was time to fight an enemy greater than Goliath, Jesus fought for you. When faced with temptations of power and greed and taking what didn't belong to him, Jesus resisted. When the law calls for the death of an adulterer, Jesus says things like, let you without sin be the one to throw the first stone. Instead of living an adulterous life, Jesus remained and remains faithful to his bride. Instead of taking our lives and killing someone, Jesus would rather die to give us eternal life. Jesus is greater than the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, and he welcomes you and I in.